0: Hey Dr. Ben, whenever you're ready. Hang on, let me see what Paul? <laughs> yeah, you sound loud and clear. I appreciate the fact you got a microphone.
1: Yep. My wife set me up on this. I have no idea what I'm doing, so I think it'll work.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. What I've learned is audio is much more important. You know, you can have a great conversation and people love the information, but if the audio isn't clear, you're wasting everybody's time. And it's very unfortunate because I've heard great interviews, really hard to understand. But no, kudos to your wife because it's a really nice group. (laughs) All right. Am I focused here? Yeah, you're good. So actually, so as much as we can see each other, I'm not going to yeah. use the video. It's just between oh, you and I. I'm okay. just, using, just using the audio afterwards. No so, problem. Uh, well, you've got enough. a lot of people. I just want to chat for a 2nd We got yeah, a lot yeah. of people excited, which is nice. Some people have sent me some questions, but I'm probably going to preempt all that because I have my own questions and I yeah, uh, yeah. want to go through some A of couple the
1: things. things. I listened to uh, your review of West Palm. My last name is Bokikio.
0: I know. I learned that now, it's a, I...
1: <laughs> but it's uh that's why I use Doctor Ben or Doctor Bo or whatever. Yeah. It's easier. And one other thing, uh, Doug McGuff. I did not teach Doug McGuff this. I actually actually taught Ken Hutchins.
0: Okay.
1: The guy who actually exposed McGuff to this stuff. Gotcha. Okay. But McGuff's background really most of his physiology came from his medical training, and it I looks to me like his own reading. But as far as the system, it's my system. But he learned it from Ken Hutchins, who was a college kid when I described it to him uh, when I first started. And then about seven years later, he wrote the book Super Slow.
0: That's funny. So you kind of watch history, you watch the ripple of your information kind of like go through the pipeline, right?
1: Yeah. No. So, I mean, a bunch of people, when the book came out, said, hey, there's a book about your system. I said, oh, that's cool. And then Kenny Hutchins sent me a book and he said, thank you, you know, for making me listen. And on the first page of his super slow uh, instruction manual, he said he didn't invent it. He said Vince Bocicchio from New York was the guy who did it, whatever. Anyway.
0: Right. Right. No, good. I appreciate that. I remember you telling yeah, me that. Just so- and I, I go, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know the Ken, but I knew the job, but I appreciate it. I'll straighten that up too. Um, yeah, no problem. Well, that's good. So what I thought I'd do, is like, there's parts of of, of what I've learned, and, and I've rewatched uh, your presentation at two locations, because, um, and it's amazing as much as me sitting and being present for that lecture, and I asked some of the questions in the end, I yeah. listening to it a second time through. It's like, wow, this is a whole new layer of understanding, uh, especially after reading some and and so on. And then I saw an ad that was on the local TV network in Phoenix that went to your facility. I don't know how long ago. this was in the last five years. And I mean, you, were, you were on it. But right. it, it kind of reviewed the um, smart system. And you took a patient. You had a few people down there. Then you walked to the other end of the hall. And you had uh, a guy lying down who was going through vascular massage. Oh, and, yeah. The ECT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... I'll want you to talk about that later because that seemed pretty fascinating. And I know it was a—it was too much to talk about at the uh, conference, but it's like I, I, the, the simplicity of the whole thing, the way it fits into low carb. It's like, wow. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a machine that was designed years ago for uh, congestive heart failure patients. Okay. So what it basically does, it augments venous return. Mm-hmm. So instead of think about it this way, at least I do the musculature of in the venous system fails basically it can't pump blood back in congestive heart failure right Right. so what happens is you augment them externally so you hook up to an EKG with these series of cuffs and when you're in diastole it picks up diastole it sequentially squeezes from bottom up and so it augments venous return so you augment venous return you increase end diastolic pressure okay and that fills the heart more significantly the starlings law, it fills more significantly. And then when it pumps, it pumps against less resistance because we've uploaded the the return uh, pressure. So less resistance, um, a a more filled ventricle. So squeezes more volume at a higher rate through less resistance, creates shear force on the endothelium, and that produces nitric oxide. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. And that's, yeah, that's it. And that's the elixir of circulation and youth and everything else. But so it does it mechanically. So, uh, so they, that company approached me and said, you know, can you, and I said, you know, this physiology sounds a lot like high intensity exercise, you know, the, the the mechanism. And so they said, can you think of other uses for this other than acute angina and um, congestive heart failure? And I said, and I started using it on elite athletes, on triathletes and stuff for recovery. And that's a, a great use. And I think for diabetics, this thing would be, phenomenal because you basically have a vascular disease right a, a vascular inhibition and this thing you know dilates capillaries like crazy uh right. so anyway that's the reason and i'm i think i'm one of the only if not the only non-cardiologist that has that machine in the country so it's kind of cool
0: excellent. that's excellent so to put that in after working out so somebody worked out in the other
1: yeah side yep yep
0: thing. Does everybody file down and do their 20 minutes on that uh, vascular massage table or is it sort of... Not
1: everybody, table? no. I, in fact, I don't use it that much, but I do use it for people uh, like, uh, for example, pulmonary patients who can't, and even though our exercise, we can kind of manage through that, but they can't exercise because they are restricted for, with breathing. On this machine, you can get the vascular benefit of exercise without increasing, in fact, probably decreasing respiratory rate, okay, and then the other interesting mechanism is, you know, the uh, X number of beats per minute is is, is cardio, and it improves your heart, actually, on this thing, you increase stroke volume, you actually probably decrease heart rate, but you get a, a vascular benefit, at least as, at least comparable to exercise, so really interesting, so you just, you know, it's mechanically augmented stuff, but Again, the, I follow the pathways, you know, what, what are the pathways that these things are instigating and are they beneficial and how, is there, are there other ways to instigate them and, and get over hurdles that might be present, right? So.
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, you always called yourself sort of a minimalist it's like, yeah. it just seems so powerful to have these two together. Yeah. I hope Doug has you back to talk more about that because, you know, half of the audience there, I don't know about half, but third or half the audience were physicians and yeah. they're looking for how to implement low carb you went beyond that and gave them something to implement you know that they can t- have their patients take home there's really no reason not to do it And your book is about you can work with a person in a wheelchair you can work yep. with charles Sparkley, you can etc yep. uh, etc cetera, et cetera. and so when you add in the vascular massage table it's like that's transformative yeah
1: right. no it's it's a powerful combination and i called it you know cutesy i called it a metabolic makeover because i think that's what people are trying to do they're trying to change their metabolism if you really get down to the nitty-gritty what are we trying to do weight loss reversing diabetes i mean this is all just metabolically changing metabolically right yep. i mean that's what we're trying to instigate so
0: yeah Got to end it. let me just kick this off yeah, uh, yeah. audio guy i can chop and put it back in because i don't want to draw out so much good information before we get talking i have plenty of questions We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is, that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Globalcap and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today we have an outstanding opportunity an interview with Dr. Uh, Vince Vincicchio, uh once a Staten Island boy from the Northeast, now living in the Southwest, and his life, I don't know why I didn't know him until now, but in my mind, he's a combination between an MD, uh, he's a double PhD and a master's, so he's not an MD, but he's between an MD, Jacqueline, and uh, everything else you want to know about physical fitness, that's the way I look at it, so Dr. Ben. Yes, welcome. thank you, thank you. Absolutely. So I want to start off by, you know, we talked a few things, talked briefly last time about uh, a week ago that you and I had this conversation. Somebody who had called you and said, you know, this person has this I don't know, $11 million grant on exercise and low carb for, I think can't remember if it was diabetes. fatty liver. Fatty liver, right? Yeah. And, and you had these two patients, that person had the two patients said, you know, they couldn't do the diet, but they did the exercise part and they got some good results. This sort of sets the right. stage. We can talk about how'd that go over? What was that about?
1: Okay, um, Elizabeth Parks. Dr. Elizabeth Parks is an academic research person. You know, no skin in the game. She's not selling anything. She's just trying to accumulate data. So she got a, I think a three million dollar grant from NIH to study liver, fatty liver disease, which is now you know very prevalent and becoming epidemic. And it all stems from, you know, overload of carbohydrate and insulin resistance and the same basic mechanism that causes a lot of our metabolic disorders. Anyway, so she told me she was using a protocol of treatment of high intensity interval training, H I I T and low carb eating. And I didn't get the specific details, but I'm assuming and I'm pretty sure as far as the high intensity exercise, she was doing the standard intermittent jogging running, or in this case probably walking up an incline then slower or bicycle pedaling faster and then 60 second or whatever it is recovery times so intervals for the but what they call high intensity so it's not sustained and just by definition for everybody out there if it's high intensity it has to be by definition interval training because you cannot sustain true high intensity exercise for a long duration. If you can't, those things are mutually exclusive. They're dichotomous. So they go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So if you're training I was telling the story this today to some of my patients. I said, guy came in and he told me, oh, I like high-intensity exercise. I know you do that. He says, I, I do that three times a week. I said, well, that's a lot. I, I said, how long is your session? He's a, he said, 90 minutes. I said, well, sorry, that's not high-intensity I said, you would have been dead, you know, 40 minutes into the deal years ago. But in any, so my point is you cannot really instigate high intensity effort and sustain it for more than a minute and a half or so. Uh, and so therefore, a routine would have to be interval in nature. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, and that's, and I try to tell people that, and that's what we basically do now. So anyway, she said that the ladies, the two gals, one was cirrhotic, I believe, had cirrhosis. And the other one had pretty advanced um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And they didn't really adhere to the... A low carb protocol, as they wanted. In any case, but they did not miss a training session over this 12 weeks period, and they both reversed significantly, statistically significantly, their conditions. But and these people doing ultrasounds and biopsy. I mean, they're doing some heavy duty, you know, study data study. So anyway, she was surprised, and I said, "Gee, that's surprising. I, that's," and I've been studying exercise, you know, for 50 years, and I said, "Wow." Then I went into the literature, and I found that there were some there is some data showing that high-intensity exercise as a, as a singular protocol can reverse and improve the condition of the liver. But then if you think about it, Carl, it makes sense mm-hmm. because why is the liver fatty in the first place? Because it's being inundated with sugar that is supposed to turn into fat, you know, de novo lipogenesis, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's like, wow, okay, now we're taking the load off because what we're doing is we're Increasing the muscle 's capacity to store glycogen because what 's your biggest storage s- center skeletal muscles and and liver and so you 're taking the load off the liver, so now it 's not inundated with having to store sugar it 's less insulin resistant and now it can get it can send the fat to fat tissue, which before it couldn 't it became inundated with its own fat you know it 's mm-hmm. human farguay you know so this is basically the mechanism. And now, now after the fact, it makes sense. Although I never really thought of it as a singular treatment for fatty liver disease.
0: So what I love about that is like, it shows how important it lined it all up, whether it was HIT. I, I think HIT goes beyond that, but it's, it's the consumer yeah. now made the biggest consumer of glucose, whether it's like glycogen or whatnot, it's like you've right. now really revved it up. So I would think that HIT. We'll talk about It's even more so because it has such an extended be- effect, well beyond the time that you're doing it. And that's
1: oh, like absolutely, it. yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, you know what's interesting. Um, we just—I was listening to uh, Peter Atia, who I know. I know Peter fairly well, and he, uh, one of his blogs, and they were talking about how you know hormonal secretions are not necessarily steady state. They, 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 they have you know. Uh, highs and lows, and, um, you know, they, they're sporadic, basically, you know, you'll have a high of, uh, like, HGH, and you'll have a high of glucagon, uh, whatever. So, and, and so I was thinking, you know, we're trying to instigate, and we are instigating measurably, some hormonal responses. So what what's, what are the metabolic responses to high intensity exercise? And the reason that we don't do them, I think, another reason maybe is, is that, on a steady basis you become inured to that and it's not like the natural impulse and pulse, pulsating kind of, of release of hormones. So this twice a week thing, as I back into it and I kind of reverse engineer how, why this thing works, it seems like that's pretty, there's another reason now why this thing works and I think why the recovery if you don't do anything of a high intensity nature in between is more complete and the upward a- adaptation has a chance to occur.
0: I agree. I agree. Have, I mean, when you came down to the more or less twice a week, I mean, what I'm saying is I'm getting older anyway, is that that response, that resting response rate, the repair response rate, whatever we want mm-hmm. to call it, mm-hmm. is pretty vital. You mentioned in the talk that I attended that 48 to 60 hours, um, you know, it's, and I would say you, people should not take that lightly. It's like you go home, Oh, of course. And go do activity as in your sense of the word. Yes. Uh, activity, but you know I don't want to see you back in the gym. But, you know certainly don't come back here.
1: Not uh, working that, that hard. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, that's that's counterproductive. That's trying to get a suntan. Staying in the sun five days in a row, five hours in the middle of the day—you cannot, re- you cannot adapt to that stimulus. You need time to adapt to that. Same, the same thing with exercise.
0: It's true. I would almost poke them in the eye with something like, you know, rhabdomyolysis, by saying, you know, your body, your muscles have to repair, sir, honey, or whatever. And if yeah. you're not letting that happen, you're actually setting yourself up for a, a rather a problem. You know, you're sure. You're, yeah, it's too much
1: stimulus. You I mean, you can't you can't respond to that much stimulus. You know, you're it, it's it's at best non-productive, but probably counterproductive, and, and in most cases, sure. And again, uh, the interesting thing about high-intensity exercise is, the stronger and more fit you are, the less of it you can take. So, see if that that sounds counterintuitive. Okay, if I get a rehab patient, it's got a, a just newly repaired limb. I could probably train them seven days a week on that limb because they aren't capable with that compromised limb of inducing an inroad into their recovery ability. All right. They just can't do it. I take a super strong conditioned athlete. They can almost kill themselves. That's how that's how strong their impetus is and their metabolic upheaval Becomes. So I have to be real careful with my really strong elite athletes that, that they recover from the twice a week. Okay. So, and it sounds again counterproductive, but the fitter and stronger you are, the less of this you can tolerate.
0: Wow. That's pretty impressive. It makes me uh, think, actually, of patients that are in the 50s, 60s, women in particular, and they're saying, you know, I can never, you know, build muscle. And you tell them, I haven't told them about your program particularly, but I yeah, thought I and you know, and it's like you know, I've been doing that, and I just don't see any difference. And I'm thinking, well, does this person not know really how to put the whole threshold thing that we'll talk mm-hmm. about later? Mm-hmm. Have they never gotten the threshold? Is that what I'm looking at? They just, you know, they're not comfortable pushing themselves. But you kind of gave me another perspective here: is that you know, you know, it takes a while to get that way, to get to the point that they now know what that feeling is. I guess I don't know.
1: Sure. Well, well, most people haven't had the opportunity or the necessity to push their muscle systems to those limits. Because, you know, again, this whole exercise physiology and that chart I have in the book and the chart I showed in the, the demo and uh, the talk was that that's which muscle fibers are we recruiting for what length of time? And then again, we will talk about threshold, but any, any prescription of behavior, or pharmacological prescription, whatever it might be, has to reach a threshold level in response in order for it to be effective. 10 milligrams of a drug that requires 100 milligrams probably isn't going to get the job done. Why? Because it hasn't met the chemical uh, threshold for efficacy, for, for you know being efficient. Right. And so the same thing with exercise, certain of these muscle fiber types that we have, the ones that support walking and mild levels of what I call activity as opposed to exercise, do not instigate... At the level necessary, the chemical responses to drive an upward adaptation in muscle protein synthesis, meaning muscle building, and in certain muscle activity, which drive mitochondria, these little batteries that we're looking to improve as, as far as voltage okay, mm-hmm. power. They just don't drive those things because the body is only going to respond to that which it has to respond to. It's going to try to drive homeostasis, which means its main thrust is to maintain the status that we're in. And so we have to coerce it. And and that's coming from an Italian from New York. We have to coerce it a little bit, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I married you a Sicilian, so we know about coercing. Yeah,
1: okay, you understand. (laughs) absolutely.
0: (laughs) But that is such a key ingredient that, you know, as I got into this, and there was a point of where I thought I was with HIT and what you made very clear is that, no, you have to get a threshold. You did, and you did your story of the man with the four cigarettes, you know, he wants to stop smoking, <laughs> and, he to two, and he goes, that's a great effort, you know, 100% for your effort, but it's not going to be effective you didn't reach that threshold. Correct. and. And that's just uh, like myself and others. It's like, yeah, I went into the gym a number of times and I thought I pushed hard, but no, you have to push to that point that it's life or death, baby. You must know that in your bones, you know? And, and, and that is so, you know, that whole idea of first, yeah, it's uncomfortable and it's a little bit disorienting, but as you talk to whoever it was, you said, I'm creating a crisis. I'm creating a controlled emergency in which I'm there helping to direct it, but that's what has to happen. Right, you know, and yeah, well, think about it, and, and
1: again, now understanding rather than scaring people away, understanding that for somebody who hasn't done this before, it doesn't take that much. You're gonna those fibers are gonna kick in because relative to what you've done, and if you're sedentary, you haven't done much. Relative to that, it may take a very moderate, objectively moderate level of impetus, or you know, uh, input. To get you to those muscles, those type 2B muscle fibers, those life or death muscle fibers, because for you, I mean, your your muscle system is untrained, and it hasn't been exposed to any kind of real uh, effort, relative effort, or, or let's say, genetically, what your genetic potential might be in, in effort potential. And so you haven't gone there. Why would you, you know, you're not running away from a predator and you don't have to take down a, a, you know, a water Buffalo to eat tomorrow. So why would you? But right. you can learn it quickly, and it it, it is innate. It, it, the mom has the baby under the car, kind of a thing, right. And, right? and you're going to get to that that adrenaline response. You're going to lift up the Volkswagen, okay? And that's just that's kind of a an autonomic. That's a response that's going to happen, okay? But but in most cases, we don't reach that amount of threat or intensity in in our muscular effort requirement.
0: Not at all. Not at all. I, I just think it's genius. I mean, a lot of light bulbs went on. I know that was your your. Uh metaphor, the Christmas tree. <laughs> life went in terms of understanding. I want to go back, though, uh, actually in your life. So uh, Staten Island boy, and uh, I mean, you, you hit the road with such clarity of asking the right questions at the right time for you to develop a pretty basic system that you stay to. And, and then you added some things on. So can we go back there where the, the genesis in your life was? Because I think that's a pretty yeah. important story.
1: Okay, a little bit. Um, my history of my family... We've had a history of people that are scientists and are into physical uh, training. Okay, I had an uncle who was, the, and this is for the only audience. He was the manager and trainer of Jersey Joe Walcott, who was a uh, heavyweight champion boxer. And I used to go to the fights and see these guys and then watch him train these guys. I had another uncle who trained with. Um, And these guys were called physical culturists back in the 30s and 40s who trained with Angelo Siciliano, who we know better as Charles Atlas, Mm -hmm. okay? So he was one of his training partners. He also became a uh, physiologist. So I got this kind of background and a couple of my uncles were coaches. And anyway, so I got into it and my father had a set of weights that he used to take the fire department test. My father had a law degree, got recruited for uh, World War II, went to Okinawa, came back out. became a firefighter in New York, but he had a set of weights that he used for the test down my basement in Staten Island. And I was fascinated with these things. I still have them that there was a set of weights that Charles Atlas and my uncle had had, blacksmith make them they were hand casted okay and so anyway I got fascinated my father wouldn't let me do it until I got to be like 13 he said and I'm going to teach you how to do this so you don't get hurt so everything was slow controlled real what we called back then you know good form you wouldn't jerking around and Mm twisting and stuff and I felt man this stuff is if you do it that way it's it's tough and it felt cool and I responded pretty well you know having one of those fifth grade uh, Italian bodies with a mustache and a cigar. And, uh, but anyway, so I developed pretty quickly. And I was always a jock, a really pretty high level athlete. Yeah. And I was fascinated by the training part of this stuff. So I went to college. Uh, I went to Ithaca and got my degree in physical education, health and science. Then I got a master's in kinesiology, PhD in muscle physiology, another PhD in health because the health thing started to become pretty evident to me. This stuff was not just for elite athletes. So I wanted to develop a system that was just absolutely minimalistic so athletes could be in season and still train and not be overworked. And, and so I met Arthur Jones, the Nautilus guy. Okay. As a grad student in Florida, just is you know, serendipity. And he explained all this stuff to me. And then I started to ask him questions. And then as far as the slow training, this is, is a little thorn in my craw a little, some people say, well, you didn't invent slow training. I said, well, at the time that I created it and used it, Arthur Jones, Ellington Darden, Ken Hutchins, none of these guys had ever heard of it. And if it had happened before, you know, I was like, uh, I was like Columbus. I didn't know that the Scandinavians landed first and uh, whatever I could, I did. So I didn't know, I I thought I made it up and I think I really did make the system. I developed the system. But the, the key to that was I asked Arthur Jones in these Nautilus machines with these cams that were asymmetrical that varied the resistance according to supposedly the perfect strength curve for each muscle yeah. they developed a resistance curve to meet that yeah. Yeah. and he, he said they developed them isometrically so i took that thought and said isometric is no speed so the slower i go the closer i go to zero speed isometrically the better i will take advantage of these cams that was the germ that got me started on yeah. slow training that was it that's how it started and if anybody has a better story let me know but that's really how it happened <laughs>
0: On that thought, but while you're talking about that, you mentioned in one of your videos too, and you've talked about the, the resistance curve that primarily any machine has, whether it was Nautilus initially, and now they're all kind of variation, per my view. Um, yeah. of that, and each person has their own strength curve, and you're mm-hmm. trying to uh, finagle the two because you, not everybody fits the machine because we're all different. Uh, some mm-hmm. might be perfect. What is that? That's a great little concept there.
1: Well, yeah, it's something that I have never seen anybody write about or talk about is, so even with a barbell or a dumbbell, you have a resistance curve has to do with leverage and uh, torque and things like, in other words, say we do a a dumbbell curl, you know, at 90 degrees, that thing is way effective and difficult because the resistance of gravity is linear, straight up and down. And now we are actually pulling straight up and down and that couple of inches, okay? When you start a curl, you can move four or five inches uh, in, uh, in the rotational arc of the movement, but only raise the weight one inch vertically. So it's only one fourth effective, therefore stronger, or you can demonstrate your strength in a stronger manner because of the leverage and the fulcrum, and the physics involved. So what Arthur Jones tried to do was make machines that would meet that curve, or an ideal or, or a median kind of a, a strength curve for each movement and make a machine. So what I'm saying is like, like you just discussed, it's not perfect for everybody obviously because everybody has different length, bones and, and attachments and insertions and origins. So what I try to do is to match, what we're trying to do is to keep a constant load on the muscle, that's one of the elements of, of smart training. So in order to that load to be high constantly, we have to try to match the resistance curve that the machine allows us with our own strength curve. So there are little maneuvers and subtleties that happen posturally with speed variation. This is getting a little deep, but in any case, we want to try to match those. So we have a constant high intensity load. And and the reason we want constancy is because again, within three seconds of of resting or a diminution of the resistance, we can get recovery of 50%. We don't really want to recover. We want to build these metabolites, this chemical stuff that builds up this soup, okay? We want to build that to this threshold level wherein we will fail mechanically, and and it correlates metabolically to this threshold level, which will stimulate an upward progression in our capacity, strength, uh, energy, things like that.
0: Right. So, speaking of the three seconds, it's, it's, Nate, you said that I didn't hear that before, but I was watching when you were working closely with Doug, for instance, that, yeah. uh, and an uh, older woman, and that you were saying, Nope, don't rest, down, get up, down, you know, get to the yeah. down, down, slow, you know, yeah. don't hang around up there. And then you referenced that, you know, the mind wants to go to a place or the muscle wants to go to a place of rest, you know, they're going to get there Sure. Up and, you know, they can hold it for a second and get a sneak, you know, extra breath, whatever that. Metaphor might be, but it's like, nope, we're coming back down. You know, don't let those three seconds happen. So three seconds uh, is—I don't think people think in terms like that. That's a—that's a a really helpful to make a big difference too. Yeah, no, I mean, it. it, This is a constant,
1: high-intensity effort. It's almost think about swimming underwater because really, anaerobic exercise really is swimming underwater, isn't it? Okay, so. You know, if you keep coming up for breaths and you say, well, I, I, I swum, uh, you know, four laps underwater," water. No, you didn't. You kept coming up for breath. So if we get to this level of fatigue, we want to get there by th- this constant one effort that builds up metabolites. So mechanically, we want constant effort, which correlates metabolically to building up these uh, chemical, this chemical milieu, this chemical mix of soupy stuff to a level that we consider threshold.
0: I got it. I got it. Okay, so uh, here you are, probably the most aware. Were you aware of how, how I would say, smart you were and what you were developing that is kind of uh, revolutionary? I mean, well, I'll you know, if, if you think about the whole um,
1: weightlifting uh, population, I, I realized I was much smarter than most of those people, but that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> just a joke, just a joke. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> No, but I realized I, I didn't accept the common thought that you had to do so much work. And Arthur Jones was, was, was in, intricate in, in that kind of development, but because when we cut down, say for example, Carl, we cut down from three sets of 10 for an, an exercise mm-hmm. to one set of three or four, and we still got the same results, then you don't have to be a genius to figure out that the amount of work that you do is not one of the causal intricate factors, right? I mean, we cut it down by 95% and still got to, so I say, so the amount of exercises. So what are the other variables? Well, the one other variable that's pretty obvious is intensity. So when I raised the intensity and I lowered the volume, I still got, so now intensity became a very vital contributor to this. And then when you study, so my, my, Strength, I think, is that I understand the mechanics and and practically, but I also understand the science. So I went back and said, "What's my science that's that's reinforcing the fact that this should work?" And it's it's you look in the basic muscle physiology books and it says, "Working at the highest level of intensity, highest energy demand." Okay, you're looking at you know thirty to ninety seconds, and some of that's mechanical, but it's thirty to sixty seconds, and then another energy system has to kick in. Okay, which, which requires us to lower the effort and also use a lower strata of muscle fibers, which are less responsive and promote less, fewer of the benefits that we
0: want to accrue with exercise. So jumping back and forth here, because I want to get back to your yeah. progression here. I'm thinking of uh, people I know personally. You go, okay, Carl, so I do this twice a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so can I go back to the gym and do other stuff? We said, didn't we just say no? Do we say that's not, not, not a good idea? It's like <laughs> they were like five day a week or, or longer of going sure. to the gym yeah, and yeah, yeah. you go, uh, you know, I don't mean to like change your whole life, but this, the answer is still for the most part, no, you know, <laughs> unless you're going to walk around the floor and socialize or do something yeah. a lot lighter, low intensity or something.
1: But, yeah, and again, see, here's the thing that you want to get away from, the, the thought, the common thought that more is better. Right. Okay. That's not the case. It, it, in almost every case, less is better. Prime example, somebody starts an exercise program, they go three or four days a week for 20 minutes and a half hour. And then they're, they're starting to slow down with regard to um, benefit. So what do they normally do? They add more. They I'll do more and they get a little bit of, a, okay. But at some point, very shortly in, in the fitness, uh, the, the, the advancement of their fitness, that's the exact wrong thing to do instead of doing more, they should do less at a higher intensity. So almost every program that you start works. Why does it work? No matter what, even if it's poorly constructed, because relative to what you've done, you're now demanding a a higher strata of muscle work. Okay. Walking a mile is going to take more muscular effort than walking 300 yards. But at some point you get diminishing returns and that the, the duration of the exercise becomes counterproductive because it disallows or inhibits intensity, which is really the driving force. Right. Okay. Because your brain understands that we are creating this life and death situation. I better respond. Mm-hmm. If you steady state exercise by definition, it's the most efficient state from at which the muscles can work continuously. Very good for a developing species to survive when they're minimally fed, okay, and had to move for water and shelter and and safety. Very good for that species to survive. Very poor for losing weight or driving metabolic uh, upward mobilization.
0: I hear that. Interesting. Okay, now back to your progression. So how did you pick up then on the low-carb part?
1: Or whatever they call it back. That's I I, I I spoke about to Ivor Cummins about this and he said how'd you get you know I've been doing low carb since uh, 75, 1975, yeah. right and I wrote my first article on fasting in nineteen seventy eight published it in seventy eight anyway so you know for me this is this is not new news no but, no so but you know how I did how I got into the low carb thing I was training and I was a pretty powerful guy and a pretty elite athlete and a lot of the guys around me were but bodybuilders, some of which were, some of who were which were uh, world famous. I mean, big time bodybuilders. So I said, "These are the leanest people I've ever seen in my freaking life." I said, "What do they do?" And that was really it. You know, I was asking a racehorse how it ran fast, but you know, <laughs> but these guys were doing low before contest for sure. Were doing real low carb and at that time high protein. And uh, I've always thought that. In fact, I told this to Peter Atia at one time when we had a one-on-one uh i said the best results i've ever seen in my life were with a uh, protein sparing modified fasts and i don't know if you remember what that stuff was it was like optifast and all that stuff where they would supplement you would have some flesh food you know fish meat poultry and a salad and the other meals were prepackaged, basically protein uh drinks that had you know vitamin those and this was a lot of the uh Bariatric and endocrinologist guys in the 80s used this pretty successfully, and I saw great results. But anyway, so, and these were really low carb, there was like almost zero carb, okay. And we were measuring ketones and stuff in the 70s, you know, we got the sticks and all the other stuff. So, so I said this work, and then when I tried it, in other words, I, I, I like to look at the you know the hypothetical theoretical basis of this stuff and say, well, okay, that sounds cool, now let's try it on people because some of the stuff that I studied didn't apply when I when I applied it to people I did not get the responses I thought I would so I don't use it I just wasn't practical and I don't know what the limitation was I just couldn't figure it out but but this stuff worked across the board people lost weight people's hunger was sated was satisfied much more readily and it seemed like they could stick to it and energy I mean I did it myself and energy was like off the off the chart now I didn't I wasn't that sophisticated in you know ketone utilization and, you know, fat being my primary source of fuel so much, except that in real life, I saw the benefits and most of the, and again, you know, I heard somebody say that, you know, losing weight is a, is an offshoot or as a secondary uh, benefit of this stuff. But between you, me and the lamppost, if weight loss, wasn't one of the criteria for which, you know, we, we could say we could make a dent, I don't think we'd have a low carb movement because no, you, know, you know, I don't, I don't give human beings that much credit to think they're going to think about their health before they think about the cosmetic effect of what they do.
0: Well, no, that's true. That's true. I hear that 100%. No, I appreciate that. You just reminded me of one of your uh, a line I've listened to in one of your four or five things I've just seen, and you said I might have been at the actually it was at West Palm, and you were saying you know you're going to have to you can differentiate this program, the smart program, to serve a functional you know goal. To serve mm-hmm metabolic goal to serve a cosmetic goal so right. recently the, the cosmetic goal or kind of the uh, the bro science guys they want their they want the the six pack and the arm they want to yeah brother. okay and so or,
1: or the ladies you know not, not I don't know be sexist
0: but the women want to lose the fat and yeah. be more youthful yeah
1: I got it yeah that's which is I mean I have no
0: problem with that do you see a big differentiation between I mean because they're, they're, they're serving the, the program serves all three purposes yes anyway and do you differentiate at some point saying, all right, you know, um, you also talked to a woman who was going off to do a Spartan race, so saying, well, I have to know more about that, but that's a goal. We can orient it a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, with a cardio patient, that would be a metabolic, or, or you know, reversing diabetes, that would be metabolic, and the cosmetic, right. the uh, muscle, uh,
1: muscle. Yeah, well, under, understand. Okay, so, so again, all of this has to do with that muscle fiber chart. What muscle fibers are we working to what end? Okay, what are we trying? What, what pathways are we, going, are we trying to accomplish? And how do we want, what is that going to manifest itself in, 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 in the end product? Okay, so um, if we're talking about metabolic, in fact, I think this basic program works in all three. Now, if I want to, and, and again, for I would say 90% of the population, it's totally sufficient. So if I get a person with reasonable genetics, which always help, okay, and we do this program, I can develop a kid, a gal, a guy into a pretty muscular specimen, okay? Now, if they want to take it to another end, then we have to start understand that we're driving that all these four types of muscle fibers to, to a, a, an optimal kind of a level. But now if I want to, if I want to get that last 10%, say I want, I want a person who needs muscle endurance as opposed to cardiovascular or global endurance. So I may go into those middle fibers that are both aerobic and anaerobic and tax them a little longer. So I may do a couple of exercises for a muscle group, especially a complex muscle group, like say lats, pecs, you know, uh, delts that have three or four functions. So I may do a couple of exercises instead of one, and I may increase the load time. So I am failing because my glycolytic Um, oxidative combination fibers are failing a little bit. So in other words, I'm in, I am actually working for muscle endurance, which is going to be something that's required in the performance of whatever it is that they're participating in. So I can manipulate it that way a little bit is, and that's kind of torturous. It's hard. It's hard to sustain that load time for two minutes. I mean, that's, that's a whole different animal, but it's probably more directly related to what we're going to have to sustain and endure in whatever it is that they choose to do as far as their c- competitive endeavor. Right. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. no, it makes Okay. Sense.
1: I, I, okay. Now if somebody wants to build muscle, then I have to really get into, if we want to build muscle, we want to make sure that all of those muscle fibers are taxed to the highest extent. That's where we get into maybe, you know, a little more mechanical work because, uh, and now we're going to have to do more supplementation with protein and maybe um, hormonal input, not, not, not exogenous, you know, not, not necessarily, although a lot of them are growth hormone and testosterone, but we may have to make sure that those things are at a reasonable level, especially as we get a little older, you know, and uh, that, that's something. And then our eating has to be, and, and we may have to do something. We're, we're trying to instigate some in, interesting signaling pathways at a very high level. And also uh, that recovery has to be uh, specifically completed i mean so it gets to become the the art of the science gets to be more important than than just the pure science if that makes you know there's an art to this thing now i have to manipulate i have to fine-tune i have to personalize very very specifically for performance or for that bodybuilding type of thing and i don't I, i mean i i knew and, and worked with some real high level world-class bodybuilders and, and people thought I was a bodybuilder. I, I just, I never was, but you know, cause I hung with these guys and had a decent physique, but that that's a whole, that's like, how do I train a football player? Well, I do the smart system and then I put them right on the field and I don't teach them how to get off the blocks. I don't teach them you know, leverage and, and positioning and things. No, of course not. That's football. Bodybuilding is different than just growing muscle. Okay. That's a whole different, you know, uh, Participation is a whole different presentation. This is an exaggeration. There's the problem, and it's not the healthiest thing in the world. If we were to metabolically, these people now some of these guys I think are insulin resistant, which helps them, because don't forget insulin drives protein into muscles too. So if you're a little insulin resistant, you know you're going to be able to to probably handle this at at, at a higher level. You're going to be able, and again that's genetic. But I also want to manifest. the most most potential I can by manipulating my little routine selectively for that, whatever it is that that end product might be.